If not, let's go to Genesis 43. I'm getting excited because obviously we're getting to the really great parts of the life of Joseph, but I'm also excited because I believe probably during the first half of the year, uh, we'll be through with both our Mark study and our Genesis study, so we get to start on two new books, uh, probably fairly close to the same time. And so, um, you know, I know it's, uh, I mean, it's a lot of work together, you know, to go through something like that. And a lot of people don't like to do it. I, I wouldn't do it any other way myself. Um, I hope that you've seen the value in walking through books like we've done. I hope you've learned a few things. And, and hopefully by the time, um, which I know I didn't start the book of Genesis with y'all, I continued the study I was doing. But uh, certainly with Mark, I hope by the time we get through, it'll, it'll change the way you look at it, change the way you read it from now on. And, and uh, man, it sure helps me as I study these things. And, you know, I'm learning as I go. And so I hope you're learning as we go. And so uh, Genesis 43, uh, just to catch you up, because it was before the Christmas holidays when we uh, last uh, were here. And uh, last time we saw... Uh, that the brothers, Joseph's brothers, had to leave Simeon in Egypt as a hostage because Joseph told them that uh, they were going to hold him hostage. They would have to go home and bring their brother Benjamin to him to prove that they weren't spies and that they were telling the truth. Of course, Joseph knew better. He was just using that as leverage to get them to bring Benjamin. And the, the brothers returned home and they were terrified because when they opened their sacks of corn, all their money fell out. Their money was in the sacks of corn. They were terrified because they thought, oh no, you know, something's happened. And, you know, now they're going to think that we stole the corn or stole, you know, kept our money. And, and so they have to go back and face Joseph because <coughs> uh, the famine's not going away. Although initially, you know, Jacob was in a fantasy world. I mean, he just checked out uh, rationally. I mean, he, he's basically like, you know, let's just leave Simeon up there and we'll be fine. I'm not risking Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph and Rachel. I'm, I'm just not doing that. And it got to the point when their corn began to run out again that the brothers, to their credit, they waited and they asked permission from their father. They would have never done that 20 years prior. And so now Jacob understands the, the seriousness of the situation and he sends the brothers, gives them double money, and he's basically resolved. He said, you know what, if I lose all my kids, I lose them, you know, but we gotta, we got to go eat, and so we got to get corn, got to get some in. So the, the brothers are uh, going back to Egypt now with double money uh, on their way to see Joseph, and so that's kind of where we pick up here. And so as we read this, though, and especially as we get into this particular scene here, uh, we need to remember, you know, Joseph obviously was a real person. He dealt with these things. This is a real story. But I think as we go, it's important to remember that Joseph is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. We've seen that in so many ways throughout this story. We're going to see that in really clearly tonight. But we need to discern those two things and not get them conflated. But um, let's read our text, Genesis 43, beginning verse 15. It says, And the men took that present... And they took double money in their hand, and Benjamin, and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home, and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. 
And the men were afraid because they brought into Joseph's house. <coughs> and they said, Because of the money that was returned in our sacks, at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door of the house, and said, O oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. And it came to pass when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks, and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and we have brought it again into our hand. And other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. And he said, Peace be to you. Fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and he brought semen out unto them. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet, and he gave their asses provender. And they made ready the present against Joseph <coughs> came at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spake, is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant our father is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. And he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, Set on bread. And they set on for him, for him by himself, and for them by themselves, and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians." And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. And he took and sent messes unto them from before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, and I just uh, thank you for this opportunity to be here. Lord, I pray that you fill me your Holy Spirit. Just seem to me as sin and self. And Lord, I just um, I lift up Leah to you tonight. Uh, my heart is with her, and I I just pray that you help her, Lord, and just that she would somehow get glory from this. And God, just show us what you're doing, and just be with us in in your presence and your grace. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us tonight. That you'd use my feeble efforts to help your people. Uh, Lord, I pray that if there's one that is a stranger to your grace tonight, Lord, that you would save them, Lord. And God, even among our, our home people, and I. I just pray that you'd meet with us, Lord, and move me out of the way and fill me your Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's in Christ's name I pray saints. Amen. I want to preach tonight on the thought of a picture of grace. A picture of grace. And I guess you could put in parentheses how the Lord saves sinners. I think this is such a great picture in what we just read. And, and I really don't even think we recognize the beauty of what we just read. In Genesis 43, there are so many, I guess you might call them hidden truths, for lack of a better word. And if you're not careful, I think we'll miss these things. But I think we see a great picture of grace and how the Lord pursues sinners and how He draws sinners unto Himself. What does this text teach us about the grace of God and His salvation? Well, the first thing I want you to know about the saving grace of God is it leads us to, number one, 
An unintended encounter with God. An unintended encounter. Look at verse 15. And the men took that present, and they took double money in their hand, and Benjamin, and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now, we see the brothers in a situation here where they had to go back to Egypt. They had to go get corn. And as a result, they had to go back and face Joseph. But really, I mean, this all goes back to the very first meeting, which was sovereignly orchestrated. Now, this is so mind-boggling to me, and I'm sure I missed some of these factors. And some of these factors we won't even know about until we get to heaven. But this is pretty amazing, even on face value. But think about all the factors involved that has led us to this point. First of all, I think you have to go back 23 years uh, to the day that Joseph, (coughs) by command of his father, he was being obedient to Jacob. Uh, He went to check on his brothers in Shechem where they were watching the sheep. And it just so happened that they weren't in Shechem. But, But it just so happened... Uh, that when he went to Shechem, there was a, the Bible says there was a certain man there. It didn't even name that man. There was just a certain unnamed man there that just so happened to know that the brothers had went to Dothan. And he was there to tell them they went to Dothan. <laughs> and of course, they see him coming. And they said, here comes this dreamer. Let's see what becomes of his dreams. And they throw him in the pit. And it just so happened that while they're thinking about what they should do to him, that these Midianite merchant men come by and they say, you know what? Let's not kill our brother. We can sell him. And so they take him to Egypt. And it just so happens that Joseph is purchased by Potiphar, which is one of Pharaoh's right-hand men. (laughs) And it just so happens that Joseph finds grace in the eyes of Potiphar. And Potiphar raises him up to be one of the choice servants in his house. And in fact, he he thought so much of Joseph that even when Potiphar's wife lied about him and Uh, said that Joseph tried to rape her, that instead of killing Joseph, Potiphar put him in the king's prison where he could keep an eye on him. And it just so happened that while Joseph is in the prison, (coughs) Pharaoh becomes angry with his butler and his baker, throws him in the prison with Joseph, and it just so happens that they have a dream that Joseph is able to interpret. It comes true just like he said, the baker is hanged and the butler is restored to his position by Pharaoh's side. And it just so happened that two years later that Pharaoh has some dreams that trouble him and nobody in the kingdom can interpret these dreams. And it just so happens that the butler remembers this Hebrew uh, slave that was in the prison who was able to interpret their dreams. And he goes before Pharaoh, he's able to interpret the dreams and Pharaoh raises him up to the second most powerful man in the empire. And it just so happened that a famine came across the whole land and, of course, Joseph's brothers were affected by this famine and they had to go to Egypt to find Joseph. And I made it a point, I believe it was in the last sermon in Genesis, it was an amazing thing that Joseph's brothers even found Joseph in Egypt. They had corn stations set up in cities all over the nation of Egypt. And it just so happened they went to the town he was at at the time he was standing right there. (laughs) All these just so happens are starting to add up. And it just so happened, I mean, (coughs) excuse me, I'm about to cough my head off. Um, We look at all these things, and I I use the term just so happened, and just, we all understand that this is the sovereignty of God, folks. Every situation, every circumstance, everything that we have seen has, has led to this point. It's led to this point. 
And the thing about it is that all these things led up to an un- unintended encounter with Joseph. And they didn't even recognize who he was, didn't know who he was. This was an unintended encounter. And can I say that uh, when it comes to salvation, when, when sinners come to faith in Christ, there was nothing done by accident. There was nothing done by mistake. God, by His grace, was narrowing the path and leading us in a certain way and bringing certain things together to get us to that place. You know, we weren't looking for God. He came looking for us. And the grace of God is not reactive, it's proactive. God in His grace seeks out undeserving sinners when they aren't even looking for Him. 1 John 4 and verse 19 says, We love Him because He first loved us. (laughs) The way that some people talk about their salvation, it's almost like when they get to heaven, them and God are going to have a high five because they did it. No, we're going to fall down on our face and worship Him for saving wretches like us. I mean, we had nothing to do with it. We weren't looking for Him. Uh, the way some people talk about their salvation, they, they might as well change some of the hymns. <laughs> oh, how Jesus loves me because I first loved Him. You know anybody like that? They act like, you know, what would God do without them, really? But the grace of God seeks out undeserving Sinners, and even in, in my situation, uh, I was raised in. I mean, the Church of Christ is so close to being a cult that might as well be one. Uh, there's most people say there's five hallmarks of a cult, and the Church of Christ have all of them, but they don't have an extra biblical book. But they butcher the Bible so bad they treat it like one. And so I was raised in that, and I I had never heard the the true gospel until I had a friend at school invite me to church. And it just so happened that we had just moved to a neighborhood that was like a mile from this church. And so I was able to talk to my parents and had taken me. And so I, I just went to youth group. You know, I was, I was just wanting to meet friends and, you know, try to fit in and all that. kind. Of, I didn't go seeking God. And I heard the gospel message for the first time. And I can tell you exactly when it was. It was the last Sunday in June of 1999. And the reason that I remember that is because I fell under, uh, you know, such conviction. And I, I realized that I had an encounter with God. It was so much bigger than a preacher just standing there talking. It was, it was bigger than words on a page. It was something supernatural that was going on in my heart. And I, I recognized that I had had an encounter with God. And, and man, when, you, when that happens, you never get over that. And I wasn't looking for that. I I didn't understand what was going on, but I I knew that something bigger and outside of myself was happening. And I I left the church that day and I thought, well, I'll probably never go back to that. That's kind of, kind of spooked me out. And, but what's so strange is I, that experience didn't leave me. It followed me to the car and it followed me to the house and it followed me to my bed that night. These things going on within my heart and, and I I just, Uh, I just couldn't get away from that. It was, un- it was an unintended encounter. The grace of God had sought me out. And I could spend all night talking about all the factors that got me to that point, And I'm sure you could too. But I had an encounter with God, an unintended encounter. That's what the grace of God does. But <laughs> what this leads to is my second point that I want to talk about. Uh, the grace of God in saving sinners 
not only leads us to an unintended encounter of God, it leads us to an unyielding fear of God. Look at verse 16. <coughs> and when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, Because of the money that was returned in our sacks, at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us, and fall upon us, and take us for bondmen in our asses. And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door of the house, and said, O oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. And it came to pass, when we came to the end, that we opened our sacks, and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and we have brought it again in our hand. And other money have we brought down in our hands, but to buy food we cannot tell who put the money in our sacks. And he said, Peace be to you. Fear not, your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and he brought Simeon out unto them. And so, at this point, the brothers haven't even seen Joseph yet, but they, the, the, Joseph's servants, evidently he hears they're in town, and he tells his servants to bring him to the house, and, and they're terrified. They're afraid because they think judgment is coming. Because they, they feel like Joseph thought that they stole the money and kept their money and stole the corn. And, and no wonder they're terrified because it was not uncommon in that day for Egyptian rulers to have dungeons in their home. And so don't you just know, I mean, they are shaking in their knees. They are terrified. This unintended encounter has led to an unyielding fear. But see, this fear... Uh, even goes back, if, if you'll flip really quickly, Genesis 42 and verse 28. This is the first time they've met with Joseph and he sent him back and he's going to keep Simeon. And verse 28, he said to his brethren, uh, My money is restored and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? This is the first time, as I mentioned before, this is the first time that the brothers reference God anywhere. And you know what it, you know what it is? Their mind, they even said so. Their mind is going back to that day where they sold their brother into slavery. And that's ne they've never gotten over that. They've never gotten past that. And they know they deserve judgment. And they believe that judgment is here. Isn't it ironic that the very place that they sent their brother to die is the place where they think they're going to die. Isn't that amazing? Well, God, <laughs> He's just got a way of doing things, doesn't He? And so they're terrified. And, uh, you know, I would say this, and this is so important. I think this is one thing the church is desperately missing in our day. But I, I believe the first <clears throat> real encounter that a sinner has with God is laced with an overwhelming fear of judgment. I believe that to be true. It's been true. I see it truly in the Scriptures. It's been true in my own experience. It's been true for people that have come to Christ that I've seen. Um, you cannot fall in love with God unless you first feared Him. There's no way to do it. You cannot appreciate salvation. You can't even know how to be saved or what you need to be saved from if there's not a healthy fear of God there. Because, and it's like with my kids, I've, I've shared this before, 
Um, they came to us on several occasions uh, growing up. I mean, as a, a preacher's kid, they often tell people, my kids had a drug problem. We drug them to church every time the doors were open. I'm talking about revival, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday evening. I bet my kids had, had been to more church in the womb than most people go to in their whole life. And so they've heard the language. And they would come to us on different occasions and say, Mom and Dad, I need to be saved. And, and we would ask them, well, what do you need to be saved from? And they said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I don't think you're quite ready yet, but let's pray and ask the Lord to, to reveal why you need to be saved. And I know some people think I'm crazy for doing that, but listen, God doesn't rush these things, and we don't need to either. I mean, we're witnessing here in the text a process that took 23 years. Look, God could do it like that if He wants to, and sometimes He probably does. But there's still a process. There's still a plowing. There's a, a preparing of the heart. And, and I believe when that time comes that God gives a sinner conviction uh, of their sin. Uh, Psalm 1 and verse 7 says, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." But fools despise wisdom and instruction. You can have the most educated Ph.D. doctor, professor out there. They can have more degrees than old man Fahrenheit, and they can be a fool. Because you cannot even begin to understand wisdom until you fear God. You know why people can uh, think that they have the power to just make up their own gender or make up the story of evolution and act like it's some you know scientific theory that can be tested, it's because they're fools. You know, everything in this universe has a, has a maker except everything in this universe. Isn't that amazing? Um, they're suppressing the knowledge of God because they hate God. But when a sinner first encounters God, there's a fear that comes over them because they recognize how holy God is, and as a result, they realize how sinful that they are, how sinful we are. Um, I, in my own experience, uh, as a 14-year-old, I was terrified. I mean, it's unreal. It's, it's, it's almost as, as if I was sitting there in the pew, and I felt like the, the emperor who had no clothes. I mean, it's like I felt like somebody was staring through me, and I, I could see my sin for what it was. And, you know, even at 14, I'd gotten with the wrong friends and was involved in doing some things, and I'd just leave it at that. And I, you know, I kind of felt bad for it. I knew it was wrong, but, but I was a slave to it. I couldn't quit, really didn't have a desire to quit. But when I saw it myself for the first time in the holy ray of God's righteousness, I mean, I felt that, I mean, I was terrified. And I, I mentioned to you that I left the church that day, and the reason that I remember that that was the last Sunday in June of 99 is because that week, you know, getting into 4th of July week, we traveled to Mississippi to have a, like a family reunion uh, with mom's side of the family. And I remember, I remember this so vividly. I remember riding in the back seat of the car, and I was so terrified that, you know, that we were going to have a car wreck or something or that I was going to die because I knew that I deserved hell, and I knew that's what was going to happen to me if I died. And you know what's so amazing to me? Like this really almost sends cold chills down me, but that the driving distance from Tuscaloosa to Columbus where mom's family is is about an hour and a half. It's not a, a super long drive. And whenever we go visit our family, uh, Leah's parents live pretty close to that area, in, in, you know, right outside Columbus in Amory. 
And so we're driving all these same roads that I drove as a kid to go see my mama's family. And so we're having to drive all these back roads. And so I actually had to go to my aunt's house to get my grandmother's car so we'd have a vehicle over there. And it's so amazing because even driving down these country back roads in eastern Mississippi, seeing the same routes, the same trees, the same houses, I remember what it felt like in that car at 14 years old. I remember all those things come rushing back to me. It was that real. And, uh, you know, I often tell people that I got saved on that Sunday, which just happened to be July the 4th. But I'll be honest with you, I think God saved me before then. I said, Lord, if you'll just let me get back to that church, I'll give my life to you. I, I was so dumb. I didn't even realize, you know, I thought you had to be in church to, to get saved or to become a Christian, all these things. And, but but you know, I didn't know. I'm so glad that our salvation is not contingent upon our understanding of everything. Amen. But man, that, that unintended encounter with God, it led to um, an unyielding fear of God. I saw Him in His holiness and His righteousness and I, I knew what a sinner I was. And I can say this, if you've never had that experience, if you've never had that Holy Ghost conviction, I would really examine your heart. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put my faith in, oh, well, I said a prayer when I was such and such age or, well, I got baptized and signed a car. I'm being honest with you. I think it's, it's nauseating. How much we have cheapened the gospel, even in Baptist churches. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how many people that I, I saw come down to the front and within a space of about two minutes, with this all-important thing that's going on, uh, within a space of two minutes, somebody walks them through <coughs> and has them say a prayer, one, two, three, repeat after me, and that's it, and we run them through the baptistry without seeing, taking time to see any fruits of repentance at all. I, I think it's so foreign to what the early church did. And, you know, if, if God is dealing with somebody, you don't have to get them at the end of an emotional service with 200 stanzas of just as I am. You don't have to do that. And so, you know, even with my kids, I mentioned that we would ask them, um, what do you need to be saved from? And they, they didn't ever understand. They didn't know. They were just repeating what they had heard. And with both of my children, when, when the time came, they, you could tell they were terrified. I mean, it was, it was unreal. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a doubt caster. Y'all know me. I'm, I don't throw, I don't heap guilt and doubt on everybody. I don't like to do that. I just like to preach the Word and let God deal with hearts. Uh, and so even in their situation, I, we had done nothing extra. There was nothing different, but man, they sure were different. <laughs> I mean, Allison was crying, I need to be saved from my sin. I, I lied to mama and I didn't clean my room when I was supposed to. And I, you know, I'm like, you know, she reminded me of the woman at the well. Whenever she went back to town and she said, come see a man that told me all that I ever did. Christ didn't tell her all she ever did. He just talked about her adultery, but to her it sure felt like everything. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. And Wesley, um, you know, we, we had a, a dear, precious man that died in our church, James Meek. And that's the first funeral I felt like they were, that he was old enough to kind of, you know, be near the casket and kind of be in, involved in what was every, everything was going on. And it, I think it hit him. The, the reality of death hit him. Hey, we do, we leave this world. And, and even though, you know, James Mink's body is right there, he's, James Mink is not there. <laughs> it, it just clicked with him. And, and you know, Wesley, he's, um, for the most part, he can be a shy, you know, pretty introverted guy. But man, I, I believe he was eight years old, and we were in the office at the church over there. 
And I said, well, son, you know, he, he told me, you know, I need to be saved from my sin. You know, I've, I've sinned against the Lord, and I need to be saved from that. And, and um, I said, well, why don't you just ask the Lord? I mean, it was the most beautiful prayer. Lord, just save me from my sin. He said, I, I, want, to go to he- I want to go to heaven when I die. I've been with my family, you know. And Well, so touching as a father, you know. And when God is dealing with hearts, all you have to do is get out of the way. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to drag them down. You, you know, churches are so concerned with numbers. <laughs> the Bible is concerned with disciples. And so I would say that if you've never been to that place, uh, you really need to examine your own heart and life. If you've never seen yourself as that sinner before holy God, I, I think about Isaiah chapter 6. And, you know, honestly, there's times even as a saved person, I think we lose the vision of who God is. And Isaiah, he did not get saved in Isaiah 6. He'd already been preaching for the first six chapters. But you read about him in Isaiah 6, and he sees the Lord on the throne high and lifted up. His train is filling the temple, and he falls down. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and uh, I live, I'm among people of unclean lips. And I mean, he, he saw the Lord in all of his holiness, and his immediate gut reaction was, woe is me. If we've never had that experience, I would really be checking up on salvation. we never seen that because, I mean, I believe the first real encounter that a sinner has with God is one of fear. Because we're not right with Him. We're under His wrath. His wrath is abiding on us. His judgment is upon us. And when we understand that, it changes everything. The unintended encounter leads to an unyielding fear. The grace of God leads people to the truth about their own sinfulness in, in reference to His holiness. <clears throat> but then thirdly, and I love this, the grace of God leads people to an undeserved goodness. Look at verse 24. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet and gave their asses provender. And they made ready the, uh, the present against Joseph and came at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought in the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to the earth. <laughs> we ought to highlight, underline, asterisk. I mean, uh, that last line is amazing there. What did we read about 23 years ago when Joseph had those dreams? What was going on? His brothers were bowing before him. They bowed the first time, but Benjamin wasn't with them. They're, he's here now. Dreams do come true if you let God do the dreaming and the planning for you. It's looking exactly like it was supposed to. <coughs> yeah, it says in verse 27, And he asked them of their welfare. And he said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spake, is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant, our fathers, in good health. Uh, he is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. And he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, Set on bread. And they set on for him by himself and for them by themselves. 
and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. And he took and set messes unto them from before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, I really want you to picture this scene here. Uh, the brothers are brought into Joseph's house. They're, they're terrified of judgment, but they don't get judgment. They get goodness. And if you can imagine this scene, there's three tables in this room. Uh, it's Joseph's house. He's the second in command. It's a big house, this big dining hall. And there, from what the description gives, there's three tables here. One of them, the Egyptians are sitting at, the servants of Joseph's house and his guards and all that. Then the other table has Joseph's brothers. And, the, you know, the Egyptians were pretty cocky. I mean, they just thought that they were better than anybody else. And they looked at the Hebrews like dogs. And so they couldn't sit at the same table with them. And at that table, Joseph had his servants place the brothers in order of their birth. So you had Reuben starting this way to Judah all the way down to Benjamin in birth order. And they notice this and they think to themselves, what in the world is going on? See, they're so afraid of judgment that they've missed a lot up to this point. In fact, when they're talking to the servant before Joseph, before they even get to Joseph, they're explaining the story to the servant. They're trying to save their hide. And the, the steward says to them, he said, may the God of your fathers bless you. Now, they, what's interesting is in the Hebrew, they actually use the name of Yahweh. <laughs> and so they don't even, this doesn't even register. This pagan, polytheist, Egyptian servant says the God, the Yahweh of your fathers bless you. They don't even, doesn't even register with them. How would they know that? Why would he know that? And they're not even paying attention to what's going on here because they're just so terrified. Well, then you have this table with Joseph's brothers. And Joseph is sitting at a table by himself. He's in an honored position. And he gives Benjamin five times the amount of food. And it's so much that it's like probably something like Derek gets at a buffet. You know, it's like this. And, and you think, well, nobody could eat that, you know. But it was so outrageous that everybody noticed it. And the reason that Joseph did this, he was testing the brothers to see if there was any jealousy there as there had been with him. He is testing to see... If there's been any change of heart, any humility in them. And so these brothers are, this is so amazing to me. They're expecting judgment. They certainly deserve judgment. And yet when they arrive, Joseph has his servants wash their feet, care for their animals, seat them at the royal table, and he fills them to their heart's content. This is a merry scene. <laughs> I'm talking about it really in the grand course of things. It shouldn't have been this way. But it was. And, the, oh man, this is, so, this is so good. This is so important here. Think about the last time that Joseph was in the presence of his brothers as they were eating a meal. You remember when it was? It was when he was in the pit. The Bible says as he was in that pit, they sat there and had a meal. They were so undisturbed by the cries and the pleas of their brother that they sat down and ate while he was begging them for his life. And yet now it's another meal. The situation's changed a little bit. Now he's in a place of power. Their very life is in his hands. One snap of the finger, 
one command from his guards. I mean, he could have tortured them and killed them. They would have been powerless to stop it. And the thing about it is, they were afraid of judgment. But had they known who he really was, they'd have been a lot more afraid than they were. Hey, that's the way sinners are. They, they, they might be afraid. They'd be a lot more if they really knew who God was. <coughs> and but So we see this undeserved goodness. And this is something that we, we have to get before we leave tonight. Um, when we talk about the definition of grace, yes, I've talked about the holiness of God. I've talked about the wrath of God. I've talked about the fear of God. But listen, all of that is just the canvas by which to paint what grace really is, to really understand what grace is. By definition, grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. There is absolutely nothing that we could do to earn God's grace. And listen, we, we, we can't um, earn our salvation by our works, and we can't even keep ourselves saved by our works. And if we could ever get this, the children of God could actually rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and stop worrying about so many things. Um, by definition, if grace means undeserved favor, in fact, this really kind of shocked me, and I guess I shouldn't be shocked anymore. But I, I, I was studying this this week, and I, was, I posted a very, very benign post about the grace of God on Facebook this week. And by the time it was over with, it had over 100 comments, 30-something shares, and just people arguing, wanting to fight about the grace of God. People that do not believe that... God keeps you saved by His grace. They can't even understand it because they think that we have to have something to do with it. And what my, my comment was this, my post was simply this, that the idea that, that we could be saved by grace and somehow lose our salvation, it's not only unbiblical, but it's illogical. Because if I can lose my salvation by my actions... It means I can earn my salvation by my actions. And the thing is, there is no such thing as deserved grace. It's a misnomer. It's an oxymoron. Deserved grace. As soon as you deserve something, it, it goes into the realm of works. And so, how can if somebody is saved by grace, how, how can they become unworthy of that grace? They were never worthy to start with. We were never worthy to start with. So God saves us by His grace, and then He keeps us by His grace all the way home. And the thing that the people that were, uh, mainly the people that argue with me, could not understand, they don't understand the concept that they think that, uh, they think that grace is a license to sin. It's just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Listen, I, that doesn't make me want to sin. It makes me want to serve God even more. That's what the grace of God does. That's what it is. And in my own salvation experience, when, when God saved me, that fear of God, that overwhelming fear of judgment, it was, it was so amazing. It was completely removed, and in its place was this peace that passes all understanding, the peace with God, that I had been made right with God and made right with my Creator. And whereas I deserved judgment, He gave me goodness, and He gave me grace and mercy. And so, understand that we're saved by grace through faith. That, that we, we, we're, we're repenting of all of our dead works. The things that we thought we could please God, we repent of those things. And then we, we put all of our faith and hope in the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. 
Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. My hope is in that. My hope is in Him. That's why we can't lose our salvation because He's holding us in His hand. And I would ask you, do you remember the, when the grace of God brought you into an encounter with, with Him? And He convicted you of your sin. And then He saved you from your sin. And maybe tonight, maybe on a Sunday night with our reduced Sunday night crowd among mostly home people. Maybe there's somebody tonight that, that you've never been to that place. But maybe tonight the grace of God is bringing you to that place right now that, that you really don't know that you have a real relationship with God. You, you may have had you know, some type of experience. You may have had, uh, been trained religiously. You may have grown up in church. But you have not experienced the saving, convicting grace of God. I would encourage you to trust in the Lord tonight and, and throw all your hopes and all your trust and all your faith in Him. Look to Him for your salvation. I, I think about Spurgeon when he talked about his salvation experience and, and how a snowstorm forced him into this little Methodist church and uh, the preacher didn't even make it because of the blizzard, but this, this deacon that had never even spoken publicly gave this little... Uh, talk and from Isaiah, and he, he talked about salvation was as easy as looking. You know, you you can look on this light, you can look on the windows, you can look on the flag. It's it's so easy. You just look to Jesus to save you, and He will. Maybe the uh, the grace of God is bringing you to that place tonight. Do you know the grace of God, or are you a stranger to the grace of God? Because the grace of God brings us into an unintended encounter with God. It brings us to an unyielding fear of God. And then it exposes us to the undeserved goodness of God. The undeserved goodness.